0: I'm Louise Howard. I'm a professor in women's mental health at King's, and I have worked as a consultant perinatal psychiatrist at South London and Maudsley.
1: Welcome, Louise, to the podcast. Really good to have you chatting with us before the conference that's taking place this week on Wednesday, the 11th of May. That's the IAPPN Research Festival. You're giving a keynote talk at that conference. And I guess in some ways, the starting point for a lot of what you're going to be talking about is the paper that you published back in 2017 in the Lancet Psychiatry. And that was entitled Gender Neutral Mental Health Research is Sex and Gender Biased. A nice eye catching headline. Can you unpack that a bit for us for people that are new to the area?
0: It's a really, I I find this really interesting because while mental health researchers for for many decades have established that there are sex differences in the prevalence of a whole range of mental health problems. For some reason, sex and gender are then ignored in many of the studies they then go on to do. So, um, for example, the study design, the data collection, the analysis and the interpretation often just don't include sex and gender, which means that we then don't know whether, for example, particular drugs are more or less effective in men or women. We don't know whether services need to be modified for for men as opposed to to women. Um, And sometimes women are excluded entirely from studies. So the classic example would be drug trials, excluding women who might get pregnant which then of course means that by either ignoring or selectively choosing a particular sex or gender we just don't know very much about everybody we just know about some people so that's what I mean by gender bias and it means that there's a gender data gap Um, as is the case for many other parts of um, society. I think it's it's becoming increasingly talked about now, but mental health research is sadly not exempt from this problem.
1: So give us an example. You're talking about a gender data gap. Can you give us an example of that in a a recent study?
0: There was a lovely study by um, a group at the IOPPN um, led by Dr Amy Shakespeare, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce her surname, so I'm sorry if I've got that wrong. But I really love this study because it was looking at sex differences in prognosis and drug resistance in people with epilepsy. And it used a large enough data set so that sex could be looked at separately. And what they discovered was that there were differences in terms of response to treatment and also prognosis. And this is the case for other areas as well. So sometimes it may be, um, for example, um, in the area of autism, because only specific diagnostic pictures have typically been investigated that are more uh, common in men with autism there hasn't been very much known about women with autism in fact for quite a while it was thought that very few women got au- autism and um, professor Frankie Hafe has done some fantastic work in that area and then the other obvious area is is like I said often drug trials have excluded women of childbearing age um, which has led to a a, whole, a huge data gap in terms of effectiveness and adverse um, effects as well from drugs. Research has tended to focus on certain groups and excluded others because they were a bit too difficult to enrol in that research for a variety of complex structural reasons and sometimes the bias is one way when we come when we're thinking about gender and sex then yes indeed sometimes it's it's actually more common that women are included in certain studies and in other types of studies it's more common that it's men and either way um, we need to make sure that we're aware of these biases so that actually when we're recruiting for studies when we're analyzing studies we're thinking about both sexes and we're thinking about the variety of different types of genders that we might want to consider in our studies. So I think we're not just talking about women's mental health here, we're talking about men's mental health here as well.
1: So, I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of why this has happened, why we are currently in this situation. You know, are, are there kind of broader um, social biases that you think are at play here? or do, you know, Why are we in this situation where we have very little understanding of women with autism, for example, because of the way the research has been done? What are the kind of drivers for that?
0: I think, of course, mental health researchers are people in society and they're no different from other people um, in society with the same biases. So when we think about a whole range, not only of specific problems, but also about the determinants of those problems, we inevitably work within the particular structural biases of a particular society. So one of the um, significant aspects of a driver of mental health problems that I've become increasingly aware of is for example domestic and sexual violence and it's really puzzling to me why that hasn't been um, studied and you know included as a really important variable in studies that are being carried out by most mental health researchers and it's probably because it's not something that people have been considering in their own lives or they've been blind to it and not realised that it's been happening in their own lives or to people that they know it's a very hidden problem but it's really important that it's included as it's such a powerful um, driver of mental health problems.
1: So do we know what impact violence and abuse has on women's mental health?
0: I think it's it's interesting that violence and abuse, of course, have an impact on men and women, um, but they experience different types of violence and abuse. And it's the domestic and sexual violence that has typically not been measured in studies, but when it has been measured, it's become very clear that not only is there a very powerful association, but it's a very complex association. So people who've got experiences of violence and abuse as a child are more likely to experience violence and abuse as an adult. If you're a woman, that's more likely to be in your relationships, your partner called intimate partner violence, um, and also sexual violence. If you're a man, then it's more likely to be community violence. And there is something that's different about experiencing violence and abuse from a partner who you live with the whole time than having um, an experience of violence out there in the community without, you know, out with your relationship with your partner. Um, There's something much more damaging to your self-esteem, to your uh, arousal in terms of anxiety if the abuse is actually coming from somebody that you're live, living with. And domestic abuse is classically not only talking about intimate partner abuse, but also talking about um, for the child, for the grown-up children, there might be violence still going on in their families. Um, so it's all types of family and partner abuse I'm talking about here.
1: And I guess over the last decade or so, we've seen this kind of, movement towards more trauma-informed services and care. What, what would you say mental health services need to do to adapt to provide better care for, for victims of violence and abuse? I think they
0: could still do better. I think it is true that mental health services are being thought in terms of trauma-informed services. Um, But I still find that there are a lot of um, professionals who haven't been trained on how to ask and safely respond to domestic abuse. They don't know what then to offer. um, And know in view of the fact that we know that it's not only a driver of mental health problems but actually if you've got a significant problem and you then experience um partner abuse that's going to actually worsen your suicidality Um, so people the mental health professionals really need to be thinking about this across the range of the interventions that they're offering.
1: So yeah, your new Lancet Psychiatry Commission on intimate Partner Violence and Mental Health is going to be launched in June at the Royal College of Psychiatrists' annual conference. And in this commission, you present a broad range of approaches to preventing mental illness in people who experience violence and abuse. That's that's a huge piece of work, and it's got lots of really useful information in it. But can you kind of paint a picture from that work of the sort of changes that we think are needed, you know, in all the different settings across society as a whole, not just in mental health services.
0: Yeah, so just before I finish on mental health services, I also wanted to say that not only should individual professionals be trained and know how to respond, but also services as a whole need to be collecting better data, because without data, we don't know how common it is for people. Um, And also that, that is a real driver for change if you know that you have to collect data on um, violence and abuse but much more broadly when we think about society we know that the risk of intimate partner violence is highest in societies that are most unequal in terms of gender relations and where violence is an accepted norm so that means that policies need to address a whole range of interventions so that they can reduce this inequality and that's inequality in terms of access to education, in terms of access to money, employment, um, and also discrimination against women and and preventing that discrimination. So we're talking about employment legislation, we're talking about what goes on in terms of education in schools, highlighting the importance of respectful relationships. Um, We're talking about anti-violence legislation, such as the Domestic Abuse Act, which came out last year, which is really helpful. It also emphasizes the role of coercive controlling behaviour. And then we also might want to think about policies to reduce harmful alcohol consumption, which we know is alcohol consumption is is associated with violence um, and, and is a trigger for intimate partner violence. And we then need to think about how these gender relations intersect with other disadvantages based on social class, ethnicity and and other factors. So it's pretty huge what we're talking about, a lot of change um, potentially, but each of us in our our own silo could be doing better, I think.
1: Can you say something about the evidence that's emerging in relation to people from LGBTQ plus groups um, who are more likely to be victims of violence and abuse who are more likely to experience mental illness. I guess that's an emerging area, isn't it? But is there anything that we know specifically for that group that we need to be doing differently?
0: I, I completely agree with you that this is an area that's been neglected. We do know from emerging evidence that these groups are, are at highest risk of, of violence and abuse. And again, it's a societal response that we need to be thinking about in terms of inclusion, in terms of um being non-judgmental when thinking about relationships in, in health services and making sure to think about different groups when you're actually designing your studies as a researcher.
1: So your group have also focused for many years on perinatal mental health problems. Can you summarise for us what we've learned in recent years about the best way to help mothers with mental illness?
0: Yes, well, maybe I'll start at the other um, end of the spectrum, and that is before people become parents um, and what can be done in preconception, as we call it, the preconception period. So one of the things that's increasingly thought about in this area is actually if we started preconception, Um, both for men and women, before they start to have families, that could be really powerful. So if people have got mental health problems and they may or may not become parents, actually addressing those problems early will be really helpful. And also their comorbid problems, such as um, partner violence we've talked about, but also things like smoking, which has a profound impact on pregnancies. Um, And we know that people with mental health problems are more likely to smoke. So uh, um, making sure that policies also focus on those types of um, problems, as well as the mental health problems themselves. So if we could start preconception, we would get things right. However, often people do have mental health problems when they um, are becoming parents and thinking specifically about mothers, we've now got increasing evidence on how best to identify problems in pregnancy and um, and after pregnancy. We're increasingly aware of the social determinants of those problems. So um, we we can start to address some of those social determinants and, um, and comorbid problems. And we've increasingly got data on um, on pharmacological interventions as well. So drug safety is a really big issue for women, of course. What is safe to take in pregnancy? Um, what should they do about medication they've been on? Ideally, this would again be something that you actually discuss with your doctor before you become pregnant. Um, but of course, if somebody is pregnant, they want to know what what is the best medication if they need medication um, to be on. And there's a really good growing evidence base on this. It was very very neglected for decades, but there is now a growing evidence base. on on the safety and effectiveness of drugs in pregnancy and also when breastfeeding. And the other thing that that we've learned is the importance of tailored care, which is perhaps a theme of this whole talk, um, is that people are different and have different needs um, and services need to be tailored. And those services that are tailored for for parents and specifically um, for mothers in their interaction with their babies, those services are experienced by women to be the most helpful and if you haven't got a good relationship with your child that might be another driver of a mental health problem so it's, it's it's complex the mechanisms here um but it does mean that if you can identify and treat those different problems then you're going to have the best outcomes not only for mothers of mental illness but also for their children
1: in a nutshell louise Why should people come to your talk at the festival on the 11th of May?
0: Well, if you're a researcher, I hope you'll come so that you'll start to think about ways of including sex and gender in your research and why that's really important. If you're a healthcare professional, I hope that you'll come because you might think differently about asking and responding to gender specific needs such as domestic violence and abuse. Um, if you're a layperson, so not a professional or a researcher, just, um, just somebody out there in society, I hope that you'll come because I think this is a really fascinating area um, about being gender sensitive when thinking about mental health. So I hope that you also find that it's interesting and relevant to your life as well. And finally, educators. I think when you're teaching about mental health, really, really important to be thinking about sex and gender differences throughout the the education of people who are becoming professionals and researchers in mental health as well.